Well, welcome in to the Wednesday Bible study. Trust all of you are doing well. Uh, we continue to uh, not be able to meet together uh, in the studio in the numbers that we normally have. Uh, and so we're going to continue to provide this Wednesday Bible study uh, on our YouTube channel and our podcast channel. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get back to all the men returning to this room sooner than later. Uh, and uh, we continue to try to be good citizens, to adhere to what we're being asked to do. Uh, and uh, we will get to the point to where all of you, especially the, the regulars on Wednesday, will be back in the room with us. But hopefully all of you are taking advantage of this incredible technology that we should be thanking God that we have. You know, there was a time that if we couldn't meet together in the same room, we, were, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And think how long it would have been since the last time we all got together. So I'm, I'm glad we're able to do this. A couple of uh, notes. Uh, speaking of things maybe returning back to somewhat normal, uh, I, I am happy to finally report uh, that there's some man church events coming up. If, uh, if you know, we, we, we launched back in uh, March, uh, themanchurch.com. And this is a, a, a hub where you can go and implement a complete men's discipleship strategy. And we had a lot of uh, you know services set up in person to then start uh, the discipleship, discipleship strategy. And all of those were canceled this last spring, but some of them are starting to, to come back and be rescheduled. So let me hit you with a few of those, and then we'll pray and get started. Uh, July the 19th, uh, make a note of that, Hazel Green, Alabama, if you're watching or listening to us anywhere in the North Alabama area, Bethlehem Baptist Church, uh, I'll be speaking at their man church, and we'll be launching the men's discipleship strategy. Uh, July the 24th, uh, if you have to be, happen to be watching or listening anywhere around Lexington, Tennessee, uh, we'll have Man Church there at First Baptist Lexington, and I'll be there speaking, excited about that. And we have rescheduled the Gridiron Men's Conference. Our discipleship strategy and materials will be available in the lobby uh, for that big event as well. David Jeremiah will be there. Uh, Phil Waldert will be there. Charles Billingsley leading worship. I'll be speaking uh, along with others. Uh, you can get your tickets now at gridironmen.com. Uh, and you can find that link at rickandbubba.com. That's August 21st, 22nd. Uh, August 29th, uh, I'll be at the Sportsman's Banquet kicking off our men's discipleship strategy uh, there at Grace Baptist Church in West Columbia, South Carolina. So all those are coming up in the next 30 to 40 days, and you can find details about all these by going to burgessministries.com and look at events or rickandbubba.com. Same thing, look under events. So let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll jump into today's Bible study. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be together. And Lord, I do pray that these gatherings of men that I just mentioned, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that it would be in your will that these dates will hold and we can get back to being in the same room and, and, and talking. There's just something about being together, as you called us to do in Scripture. Uh, but I'm also thankful for the technology that allows us to continue to walk through your word even if we do that from a distance, uh, there's still, uh, you know, the, the opportunities abound uh, to point people to you all over the world through this technology that you allowed to be created by those you gifted to do so. And may uh, this be used for your glory as opposed to uh, the adversary using the same technology for all the destruction that he has used it for. Uh, we know that it, it belongs to you. Uh, and Lord, today, may we use it to glorify you. Uh, be with us as we unpack and assess ourselves to see where we stand in our relationship to you. Uh, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, so we're in, we're going through uh, a series, and this one, as I have said for the last several weeks, has generated more emails. I'm, I'm even getting emails from other churches saying that they have people that are contacting them that have been watching this series or listening to it. It's called The Unsaved Christian. This comes from commentary in a book written by Pastor Dean Insera, I-N-S-E-R-R-A, out of Tallahassee, Florida. I've had the chance to interview uh, Pastor Dean and, and talk to him, and we certainly um, share uh, a lot of the same concerns about reaching cultural Christianity with the gospel as he's laid out, and I think it would be difficult to make a case otherwise. This is likely the, most, uh, the largest unreached people group uh, in the United States of America. Uh, so we have been concentrating on that, uh, assessing ourselves first, am I a cultural Christian? Uh, and then secondly, if we come to the hopeful, the conclusion, no, uh, then how do I reach the cultural Christian? How do I do my part? And today's going to have that same feel uh, as we will be uh, concentrating today in, in chapter 11 uh, inside the book, uh, the moral theist, reaching the good person who believes in God. Uh, now remember, every time we we take on you know a chapter, this is definitely going to be helpful today to help us do our part to reach people uh, for Christ. But at the same time, I can't reach anybody for Christ if I myself don't belong to Christ. So we also first assess ourselves through all these different uh, chapters. Is this me we're talking about? Do that first, uh, and then get that right. And then if if not then you say, no, I, I do believe I'm a, a devout follower of Jesus and my life reflects that, then how do I strategize to reach uh, a cultural Christian? Because let's, let's talk about the difference a, a little bit. Well, first of all, most of this book really can, can, uh, can, can land right at Matthew 7. And, and for those of you that have been part of our Bible study here on Wednesdays for several years, you know that we find our way to Matthew 7 over and over again, and we're going to find our way there again today. And, uh, and we usually start at 13, and then we find ourselves ending in, in 27 of Matthew 7. But I'm just going to focus on uh, you know, uh, 21 through 23 because I remember when I was a cultural Christian, every time I heard this passage being discussed or taught, it always convicted me, and it gave me, uh, you know, it gave me great concern. Uh, and, and it should, because here's Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, which we always have to hang on to that. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you are workers of lawlessness." And, and really what Jesus is taking on, because he's talking to religious people, uh, if works of righteousness are not done in worship of Christ, then they are actually works of iniquity. Now think about that. You may have all the best of intentions, and you may have this great moral code, and you may do all these works, and certainly, you know, the Bible talks about works being the result of salvation. However, if your mindset is these works earn me salvation, or if these works of righteousness are not done through worship of Christ, then actually I'm trying to bring attention to myself, and now it becomes actually works of iniquity, not righteousness. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Usually, though, in, in most cases, and I thought this was a good adjustment to make, 
is it true that sometimes this mindset of, of I'm doing works of iniquity because they're more about me than they are about the worship of Jesus, can that a lot of times be the result of arrogance? Certainly. But most of the time, and I know it was in my case, not that I wasn't arrogant. I certainly struggled and still struggle uh, you know, with, with pride. Anybody who says they, they don't, that's a prideful statement in and of itself. But, but I'm talking about most of my problem as a cultural Christian, it wasn't really based on arrogance. It was based on ignorance. I was ignorant. I, I, I honestly didn't know the standard of the Bible. I didn't know very much about the Bible. Uh, and, and we talk about this. So cultural Christians, and this was me. Remember, when I, when I teach this, I'm, I'm a recovering cultural Christian. Cultural Christians, and this is 100% correct, are trying to meet the cultural standard of Christianity, not the Bible standard of it. Does that make sense? The cultural Christian is just simply saying, based on the things I know about culture, I think I have met the culture's requirement of being called a Christian, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily have met the biblical standard of a saving faith. I've met the cultural standard, and can I give you a heads up? The cultural standard is not very high. (laughs) Because the cultural standard says, as long as you're not as bad as fill in the blank, then you're probably okay. And if you follow these rituals and do these things, you're probably great. Uh, so, but that's not the biblical standard of, of saving faith. And then uh, Pastor Dean and Sarah begins to talk about how if you're at a church, because I've been there, I mean, I, and I agree. If you're at a church and you want to put a testimony up before the, the congregation, you usually do the testimonies of what? The down and out. Look, the down and out, look, we know. Because that's what finally saved me is when I became a down and out. Uh, the, the down and out, I mean, they're easy to talk to about Jesus. You know why? They're fully aware that they are wretched, and, uh, and, and they always great for, make for a great testimony. The guy who's been in prison, what a testimony. The guy who's been a drug addict, what a testimony. Uh, the guy who lost everything because of you know, uh, some adulterous uh, you know, affair that he had, the man, these are incredible testimonies. The marriage that broke up because of sexual infidelity and God put them back together and now they're both under the authority of Christ. These are outstanding testimonies, uh, and, and, and they should be. But the difference between the testimony of, of the down and out is the acknowledgement of wretchedness versus the cultural Christian who is completely the opposite. Because, because when you're fully aware of your brokenness, and you know that your best efforts have already led to a life that is a mess, and you've come to the conclusion, I got problems and I can't fix them, well, then you can be helped. But see, the cultural Christian doesn't feel that way. The, the cultural Christian is completely the opposite. You know what the cultural Christian says? I'm satisfied with who I am. I'm good. I, I don't think I'm all that bad. Uh, and, uh, and, and my personal level of righteousness has been met. See, because have you ever noticed this, and I, I talk about this a lot, especially with somebody who has had to deal with sin in, in my life, you know, later with my walk. Because you know, what happens is you start out in the beginning. I was such a mess in the beginning. I didn't have time to mess with the finer points of my life. I had to get all the wretchedness turned around first. There were so many obvious problems. It was like you come to a place where there's been a tornado and you decide to fix it. You're going to pick up a plastic bottle and throw it in the trash. No, we got a lot more work to do. Let's go to where all the houses have been destroyed first and we'll work our way back to that, that, that plastic water bottle. And so that was my life. But you know what? Eventually, 
When God begins to clean things up, guess what he starts taking on in? Things that you need to get to that it just took some time. And for me, that was gluttony. And we've talked about this, my struggle with my weight and overeating and, and living to eat versus eating to live and, and the balance of that in Scripture. And I remember, and this is the problem with the cultural Christian on a spiritual level, I remember that when I was in charge of, 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 of how much I would eat or I was in charge of what I was going to eat or I was in charge uh, of how much I was going to work out, I found that myself was a really easy boss to myself. Uh, ah, that's enough. Ah, don't get carried away. Uh, so most of the time, the cultural Christian, you know what level of righteousness the cultural Christian has met? Their own. Uh, our cultures, which are the culture, which is normally the same thing. So uh, it's not our personal level of righteousness. That's not the standard. It's the Bible's uh, level of righteousness. And, uh, and what you find with the cultural Christian, I was this way. There's really no despair over sin at all because you know what you think? I'm not that sinful. Now, that's delusional, but that's what the cultural Christian thinks. So you, I would like to see, and I think if you, but, but they're hard to reach. I think that really, you, if you want to turn a, uh, a church upside down, and look, I'm not against the testimony of, of, of the, the, the down and out. Those testimonies are powerful. Uh, but I can tell you a testimony that I think might rattle most Western churches more is the testimony of a cultural Christian. Somebody who said, I thought I was saved, but I was delusional. And, uh, and so one of the things that we, we find, and we're gonna, now what we're going to do over the next couple of chapters is we're going to take specific versions of cultural Christians, and we're going to assess, am I one of these? And then we're going to talk about what would be some strategy to reach someone that will be in this category if it comes if you come to the conclusion that you're not in this category and the and the one we're going to deal with today is uh, the one that we talked about when we first started opening up this book and this is the moralistic therapeutic deist uh, uh, you know this is this this is probably one of the major manifestations of the unsaved Christian and we're going to kind of talk about what is a moralistic therapeutic deist and then you're going to ask yourself an uncomfortable question am I one and then if the answer is no, then we're going to talk about how you can reach someone that may be in your life that meets this standard. So here are some, here's five things that we'll kind of unpack that, that usually indicate uh, five principles that this person is a moral theist or a moral deist, meaning they believe in God. You know, they're, like we said before, they're kind of big man upstairs, kind of, it's not real personal. Uh, and we'll talk about these five principles that you need to look at first in your own life. And then secondly, maybe in the lives of others, family members, friends, uh, acquaintances, people in your circle of influence. So number one, if you're dealing with a, a moral theist, number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Remember, we cannot say this enough. When you're dealing with any version of a cultural Christian, you are not dealing with an atheist you are not dealing with an agnostic. What you're dealing with is someone who doesn't have God right. They don't have saving faith right. They don't have the gospel right. But they, they absolutely believe in their version of God. Okay? That's important. So the, the, uh, the, the moral deist or theist uh, believes there is a God that created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Unsaved Christians are certainly not atheists, as we said. Uh, and... Um, 
they proudly believe in God. They, they don't mock believers of God at all. And uh, they probably could share with you some well-known Bible stories. Uh, the, the moral uh, theist uh, usually knows the story of Noah and the ark. He's got, he or she's got some idea about David and Goliath. Uh, Moses is not someone who's foreign, foreign to them, parting the Red Sea. So if you sit down for a discussion with a cultural Christian, you must remember this. Um, he probably thinks, or she, they probably think that they share the same faith as you do. So you're not, you, you're not going to start out sitting down talking to a moral theist, uh, and, and, it's, and they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're not going to call themselves a cultural Christian or a moral theist they're going to think that their faith and your faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, is exactly the same. And that's why it can get a little awkward. It can be a little more difficult um, because they don't have a concept of the difference in the actual beliefs. Here's what they normally think. When they sit down, if you're a devout follower of Jesus, uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus, when you sit down and talk to a cultural Christian uh, or a moral theist, what you're going to discover is their their conclusion on your faith is you have the same faith, you're just a little more into it than they are. That's it, a little more radical. But they do not think that they have a different faith, and that's important to know that. Uh, So in their minds, they believe in the same God that you have given your life to and follow, and this is good news. This allows you to be an, an ally in a conversation, but keep in mind, it can get awkward quickly especially if they feel blindsided by theological debate. So you, you don't want to come out with the guns blazing right out of the gate because uh, you want to ease into this. But if you'll ease into a theological debate, the cultural Christianity will begin to reveal itself because they'll discover pretty quick, as you will, that they don't have much theology. There, there's not a lot of depth to, to this God that they claim to believe in uh, they understand love their neighbor, and uh, you know they understand about uh, you know uh, trying to tell the truth. And uh, but but if you love them enough, then we have to say. See, I, I think this is one of the problems that we have. The church has it, and when I say these things, I'm talking in general. There's always praise the Lord exceptions, but I think one of the problems that we have, and I know I have this problem. So remember, everything I talk about starts here first. I think we have an easier time talking to someone who acknowledges either they don't believe or, as we said, the down and out. It's almost like we're willing, and I don't know why, I guess because it's awkward and more difficult. It's almost like we're willing to let the cultural Christians stand unopposed and just hope it's going to work out. That's the way it feels to me. It feels like the church doesn't really want to take this on in general, the Western church, and it feels like Rick Burgess included that, that uh, a lot of us will even say things to each other, well, so-and-so is delusional that they're a Christian, but we won't say it to them. And you don't need to say it in a mean way, but you need to, if you really love them, you need to have the conversation and tell them the truth, and that's going to require awkward conversations. Uh, so one of the things I think is always helpful, so first of all, you're assessing, does this sound like me that I believe in a God that I don't know that much about? But let's say you've passed that test. Now you're saying, but I need to talk to people about this. I think this is a better way. I agree with Pastor Dean and Sarah, who authored this book. He says, if you're going to try to reach a cultural Christian, don't start out by telling them stuff. Start out by asking them stuff, asking them questions. So you can kind of get an idea 
of what they know and don't know, and they'll begin to get an idea. So they'll, they'll be allowed to flesh out their viewpoints before you know uh, you find a point to drive home. Usually you'll find this, because remember, James 2.19, write that down, James 2.19. Remember, this is the conclusion I had to come to in my own testimony, is that I had the faith of a demon. And James says in James 2.19, uh, it sounds like you believe everything that demons believe, great. So you believe in this God, so do demons. You believe in the Trinity, so do demons. Uh, they have a general belief in God's existence, but yet they reject uh, the part. And, 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 and if you look at the real theology of the Bible, the fallen angels are not given access to redemption. Okay, so, but they certainly know everything about God. But do you know enough to actually, to, have you taken the steps that actually have you redeemed, or you just know the basic concepts uh, that the Bible says about God and you don't question them? Uh, that's not salvation. Uh, that that's that's the same thing that demons believe, and so that opportunity might focus uh, might open up an opportunity to talk about this. Do they believe enough about God uh, to to save them to redeem them? So take the time and care to help guide your friends or family members to that understanding. So let's write out number one. If you're taking notes, the moral deist or theist believes that God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, and then you're going to ask some questions to see how much they know. Does it pass James 2.19? Does it pass a demonic faith? So your focus of the conversation dealing with item number one, the focus of the conversation should be, who is God? Okay? So if we'll make a note of that. I want to have a conversation, and I want them to tell me who they think God is, and I'm going to see if it matches up to what the Bible says that God is. All right, so that's number one. Number two, when you're dealing with the moral theist, or if you are one, here's what they believe. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other religions. So I run into these people all the time. I've even had some comments I've removed from this Bible study before when you you get a comment every now and then of hey close your Bible and just understand that you know all religions basically say the same thing well they don't that's incorrect they they don't so uh, this thing of people people need to just be good they need to be nice they need to be fair to each other Some, sometimes the moral uh, theist uh, and the cultural Christian will think that the ultimate goal in life spiritually is for you to be liked by everybody. That, the Bible doesn't say that's the goal of the Christian to be liked. Uh, it doesn't say that. Uh, cultural Christians believe religion teaches great lessons and can contribute to the common good and helps people become better. Uh, I will add that love is usually their primary goal. Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just that's not what saves us. In fact, part of the why they may shy away from our more extreme version of Christianity is they're uncomfortable because they kind of find it exclusive and closed-minded. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Statements like that, John 14, 6. Um, statements where you really realize, and we've talked about this in the Gospel of John, that if you look to the cross uh, for the redeemed, the cross means redemption. For those who reject God, the cross means what? Judgment. 
And, and so, you know, if, if you try to come to God any other way than through Christ and the redemption he alone provided on the cross and through the resurrection, if you're trying to get there any other way, then the cross will condemn you to eternal death. See, they don't like those kind of conversations. Those kind of conversations make them uncomfortable. They kind of like the social gospel. Do good things, be kind to people, be nice, try to be liked, you know, let's, let's be fair. And uh, the problem is, where's the standard for fair? They're always a little gray on that. Uh, the, the reason, when they talk about God wants people to be good and fair, but they don't understand the reasons because he is good, just, merciful, and has demonstrated this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God created qualities such as love and kindness, but only one has ever perfectly modeled those, and of course that is Jesus Christ. Some questions you might want to ask the, the cultural Christian would be, what happens when you're, you aren't exhibiting this good qualities or being a good person? Does God care about that? What about when you're not being good? What about that? Uh, so are you telling me you're always good? So when you're not good, does God care about that? Are there any consequences? Uh, you may find that many cultural Christians operate as if good deeds cancel out wrongdoings, and that's what makes God, ha God happy. Now, see, that now you're starting to get into other world religions that, that do this, this scales, and what you're trying to live your life is to say, I've got more on the good side you know, than I do the bad side, and so every time I do something bad, I do a couple things good, and that cancels it out. Hey, that's not the gospel. That's not, that, matter of fact, you can find a lot of uh, blasphemous religions that believe that. That's not the gospel. And so we, we can't be afraid to say, you know, that's not really the gospel. Uh, even Bible-believing Christians can sometimes fall into this Christianized version of karma. Now, now, the Word of God says that we will reap what we sow, which means there's consequences to what we do. There's always consequences to sin. Sin always matters, but that's not karma. Uh, you know, you, karma is, you know, if I do this, then good things will happen to me. If I do this, uh, if I don't do that, bad things will happen to me. That's, that's not it, because here's where the gospel is so wonderful. You don't get what you deserve. Isn't that the beautiful thing about the gospel? Because of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to get what I deserve. Because what I deserve is to be separated from God forever by the way I have blasphemed him in my life. And without the redemption of Jesus Christ, I could go out my best and try all I can, of all my best efforts to cancel out my sin by trying to be good enough, and it can't be done. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is finished. How am I made righteous? Through Jesus. He makes me partially righteous? righteous? No, fully righteous. And then this new life, this new creation comes from his power, not my new found code of conduct. Not trying to do a little bit better. You know, that's one of the things that we joke about on the show about our physical health where we try to do a little bit better. Well, that's one thing, but you can't live that way with your spiritual life. And a lot of cultural Christians say, I'm just trying to do better. Well, good luck with that. That's going to be very frustrating. That's the reason why you need the power of Christ. So God is not tricked or appeased when we throw him a bone. And look, I can order you know, a water instead of a large Coke, but if I'm eating my double cheeseburger, it's not going to cancel out the calories of the cheeseburger. And that's how some cultural Christians live their life. 
I do some bad things, but I do some good things too. Well, that doesn't cancel out the bad things. You, you do understand it. It doesn't. The bad things stand. Uh, you, you, you might be a person who's done some good things and some bad things, but the good things don't cancel the bad things. Jesus cancels the bad things. Somebody say amen. So maybe we should consider that cultural Christians may have never been taught about a holy God. They've never been taught about a holy God. This is why they call him big man upstairs and, you know, uh, the big force or whatever. That's why they do that, because if you deal with the holiness of God, you will tremble. You, you, you know, it's, it's, I love when Adrian Rogers, when people start this thing like we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be some giant grandpa sitting there, uh, and he's going to have a, you know, his legs uh, crossed, have his foot up on his knee and say, well, let's do a little Q&A. What are some things y'all have always wanted to ask me? <laughs> I don't know where, where people have come up with this. I don't think we get a Q&A. Now, we may be aware of things we weren't aware of because of his power. Adrian Rogers said this to the famous Q&A everybody seems to want. I'd like to ask God about this. No, you know what Adrian Rogers said? We might spend the first thousand years in the presence of God on our face repeating holy, holy, holy. Think about, I, I know I bring this up a lot, but it's important because some of you may have never heard it. Job himself, at the beginning of the book of Job, he was referred to as, as a human being as being blameless and upright. And God allowed Satan to do horrible things. Why? Why did he allow Satan to do those things? He killed 10 of his children. He, he, he then took away all of, his, all of his wealth, all of his livestock, put sores on him, made him terribly sick. And God told Satan what he could and couldn't do. And God brought Job to Satan's attention. Why, why did God test Job like that? Whether you, I could give you hours and hours of commentary, but I'm just going to simplify it for you. At the end of it all, this man that, that the world deemed as blameless and upright, Job looked good compared to what? Other human beings. But when he finally got to the point that he wanted to hear from God on what was going on, and God gave his resume to Job, Job 38 through 42. Go read Job chapter 38 through, through, through chapter 42. You know what I call it? God's resume. When I, when I, like I said last week, when I was down at the Gulf of Mexico, one of the days there was a storm coming in and it was ripping and roaring out there. And one of the things that God told Job, he said, Did you, do you tell the water where it can and can't go? Do you tell the sea where to stop? Do you tell the sea when it's, it's churning up, that's enough of that, and it stops? Well, I do. And so at the end of this, when Job, through his suffering, had been brought in a more intimate relationship with God than he had ever experienced before, only suffering accomplished that. And then he saw God. These are his own words. Before I'd heard of God, but now I see God. And now that I see you for who you really are and how holy you really are, I despise myself. And I repent in ashes and dust. I thought this guy was blameless and upright. Well, he was compared to other people, but not compared to God. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we were redeemed, because we stand as sinful people, and we are trying to get in the presence of a holy God, and it can't be done on the best efforts we could ever put together, which is why we need Jesus. And that's the gospel.
It may be eye-opening to explain God's standards of perfection. I, I get a pushback on that every time I do it. Hey, Rick, you ain't got to be perfect. Go to heaven. Yes, you do. Who told you that? That's the, the Bible says you better be perfect. Why? Because God's holy. You think a speck of sin can walk in the presence of a holy God? It can't. So, yes, you do have to have perfection. What, what did I say a minute ago? Jesus Christ went to the cross and walked out of the tomb to make us fully righteous. Not partially righteous. Fully righteous. So God's standard is actually perfection. Well, Rick, nobody can be perfect. That's right, but Jesus can. He, he makes us perfect. And then in his perfection and, and our devotion to him, we begin to see our desire for sin to be replaced by our love and adoration for Jesus. And then he sanctifies us to make us more holy throughout our entire lives. So God's standard of perfection and sinlessness is only found in the life of Jesus. Yes, we depend on his death to substitute for our death, but you know what else? And this is the part that seems to never be taught. But, buddy, we've taught it in here, haven't we? It's not just Jesus' death that was a substitution for our death. His life is also a substitution for our life. And I think we miss that. And the cultural Christian doesn't know that. And, and so it's important that we do our part to apply that to our lives, or if we already have, to help others. We must understand that Jesus not only died a death that we deserved, but he, lives, he lived a life we could never live. So not only did he die the death that we don't have to die, he lived a life that we can never live. It's all wrapped up in him. Praise his holy name. Any good thing we do a new creation, as new creations, we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Cultural Christians need to understand why the sinless life of Jesus not only matters, it is paramount because their very salvation depends on it. Only one is truly good, and it certainly isn't any of us. And certainly, it certainly isn't Rick Burgess. So the conversation focus for those who say God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other is taught in the Bible and by most religions. The conversation focus for this person is, must be our sinfulness and Christ's perfection. So make a note of that. Then he, he gives, a, he gives a, a pretty funny analogy in here, and we all know this guy. He's calling him a guy named Danny. Uh, and he says, you know this guy. He said he, he's, he, he's always stepping, stepping in to help his wife with housework, picks up the kids uh, so she can be present at work or whatever she needs to do. He never misses a single kid event. He's involved in everything. All of us secretly hate him because all of our wives wish we were more like him. By all accounts, he's a fantastic guy. And he said, when you think of your lost friends, you never think of Danny. But honestly, he behaves because honestly, he behaves better than you do. He's a better husband and seems to be a better dad. There's no glaring character flaw. Unlike people who feel their failure and a need for a savior, you and you and Danny kind of feel like he's got it covered. He seems unapproachable for gospel conversations because neither of you know how you'd get to, to the part where Jesus is our only hope. You never dare imply that the Dannys of the world are going to hell. But we have a Bible that includes Galatians 2.21. If righteousness could be earned, then Christ died for nothing. Danny, the Dannys of the world can't earn their salvation. And, and usually the, the, the part of their life we see is not their whole life anyway. We don't know who they are in, their, in, the, in the secret life. So Paul tells us this in Galatians 2, 21, 
this is a powerful verse. He said, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul didn't know Danny, but he said, if Danny can do it, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. And so the tricky part of reaching the moral theist is that your, our ability to interpret their, their eternal state reflects on your convictions about the reality of heaven and hell. Don't be in denial about Danny, the dynamic dead. Denial on our part, not necessarily his, might be the biggest obstacle to reaching him for Christ. Is the fact that we got to realize that we, we need to see um, that even the nicest people we know, if they reject redemption in Jesus, they're going to hell just like the person that we don't like. And it's almost like we're not willing to care about them either. I love this. He said, here's some things you got to watch out with the Dannys of the world. Do you have the tendency to give him an exception because he's such a nice guy? Do you have to rationalize, rationalize that he's a Christian because he's so moral and nice? Don't let your inner turmoil blind you to his need for the gospel. Are you, are you mistaking theism for saving faith? Are, are you the judge of who is good? No, but God is. Who do you, why do you think Jesus died? Do you believe Jesus' death was meaningless? What is the standard for good? Do you believe heaven and hell are real? If so, you can't be in denial about the state of the Dannys of the world. Fight the inclination to view him as an exception. Ask yourself, if you spoke at Danny's funeral, what would be your justification for him being in heaven? That's good. You ever, you ever been to those kind of funerals? They're awkward. I've, I've had to speak at a funeral like that or two. It's awkward because you sit down and you start trying to talk to the family, and this is somebody that might have been an acquaintance of yours that you didn't know that well. Maybe you knew them through sports or school or uh, something like that, but somebody thinks that because they've seen, you know, I'm not bringing glory to myself, but they look at you and say, this is somebody that seems to care about their faith. So this would be somebody good that kind of knew my husband that could speak at his funeral. And then you sit down and begin to talk to Danny's kids, and Danny's a fictional character. Um, and the wife, and you realize there's no evidence of saving faith in anything they're saying. They talk about how much he loved his team and how much he liked his hobbies and how he, he went to every event for his kids. And uh, he was, uh, you know, a selfless husband who, who, who wasn't afraid to help with the housework. And, uh, but you can't really, you can't find a testimony in there. And it's an awkward thing. So what do you end up talking about? Not his great impact for the kingdom of God, but you begin to talk about his impact for his community. That's about all you can do. Uh, or as uh, one, one worship leader said to me one time, and I'll never forget this, after that conversation, looks like we're going to have to add some songs because our eulogy for him will be quite short as far as the kingdom is concerned. So if we really love the Dannys of the world, and I want everybody to know who may be listening to this, I realize my pastor's name is Danny Wood. Danny, this is not about you. Uh, this is the word that Dean and Sarah, the, the person's name that he chose, not me. So uh, I don't. nobody go tell my pastor, hey, Rick was talking about you in the state. It's not my pastor. It's a, it's a fictional Danny. His name could be anything. Uh, so now we move to the, the next category of the moral theist, and this is point number three. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. This one's my favorite. Uh, th this one I have the least amount of patience for. The goal of life is to be happy. 
just we just need to feel let's just have some fun. And you know what? I'm a fun zone guy. I like to to have fun, but our goal in life is not to be happy and feel good about ourselves. Uh, that that is not it. Uh, the secular Western world is largely driven by personal fulfillment, and you can watch this creep into the Western church sometimes. You would think the church is all about us socializing, feel good about ourselves, and and one of my I do not like this term at all, and y'all know it. Buddies of mine are already saying it with me because they've heard me say it. I don't do life together. That that's not the church is not doing life together. I, I loathe that. Hashtag blessed, all that. Hate it. No, the church is working out their salvation, according to Scripture, with fear and trembling. And we lament about sin. Uh, we, we despair about the wretchedness of ourselves compared to a holy God. And we are thankful and we are grateful for the grace that we have been given. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we live a life that doesn't look like that we've taken that grace for granted or that it was wasted on us. And now that we've been afforded grace, our goal is to go out now and to worship ourselves until we die and to to go out and feed every inclination or desire of our flesh our, our, of, our, of our, uh, our standard of happiness. Uh, God just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. You know, if you've read my wife's book, you know that was a that was a moment that changed her life forever. And because of it being my wife changed my life forever. When we had buried our youngest son, and we we you know our life was not perfect before that because no one's life is. But for the most part, we were pretty much happy. And uh, and and she said uh, to the Lord God Almighty, you know, but Lord, I can't believe this has happened. We were so happy. And she heard as clear as she could from her holy father, but I want you to be holy. This is refinement. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials to test the genuineness of your faith. When, when, when you look at, at 1 Peter 4, those that have suffered they have suffered, and now they're getting to the point where they're no longer held captive by the desires of the flesh. Their sinful nature has been refined uh, by the suffering. Uh, y'all have heard me say this before, and, uh, and I chuckle the times my wife has done it. We'll see some young man who's, who maybe is stepping up for his first time in the faith, or maybe it's a, it's a young woman and she's doing something in ministry. And they may be given a chance to talk, or maybe we're reading something that they wrote. And you know what my wife will say? Man, they're really going to be something once they suffer. Because they haven't been refined yet. If You know when someone suffered, when you hear it, there's a, there's a spiritual base that comes with it. For those that have suffered and have been refined, if they didn't reject God, if they passed the test, if they ran to him and were transformed by it, and got in that relationship with the, with him to the point, like Job said, that you despise yourself, and it's and you want to live out his desire for your life, not your own. You can hear that in the tone of those who have suffered, and we're better for it. And so the 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 moral theist doesn't want to hear about that at all. They want to to say that God wants me to be happy and wants me to feel good about myself. How does anybody come under conviction if you think the whole goal in life is to feel good about yourself? How does that ever bring conviction? 
Well, what changes our life when we're convicted? That's when we address things in our life that shouldn't be there, when the Holy Spirit convicts us. Well, you're never convicted if all you're doing is saying, God just wants me to be happy. Where do you find that in Scripture? You may find in Scripture that there's a, there's a peace and joy that comes with being redeemed, sure. But again, the emotional part of happiness can be compromised by traffic or your order not being right. You've heard me talk about this. So anyway, so the problem is the cultural Christian or the moral theist, they're not really equipped to handle hard things. Faith uh, becomes a means to an end of feeling good about oneself, and God is just a genie in the bottle helping us to achieve our personal ambitions. doesn't sound uh, exciting in a conversation, but I must be clear that God doesn't promise us in Scripture that we'll achieve our dreams. You ever heard that? God wants me to accomplish that goal. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't say that. Uh, it says he, he promises he will always be with us, Write this down, Matthew 28, 20, never abandon us. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, 6, write that down. He will carry us through the completion of our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, Philippians 1, 6, and he'll use every moment of our lives to make us more like Jesus. Romans 8, 28, which is often misused, and 29. You do know it says that he's working out things for our own good, but he says, but that doesn't apply to everybody. That just applies to those who love God. Don't miss that little part in, in Romans eight twenty eight. You you you'll miss the whole thing. See, some people take that verse and they put it up, and say, no matter what's going on, according to Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine, it's all going to work out for, for 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 good. No, no, not if you don't love God. It's not. It, it says for those who love God. Don't miss that part. He will accomplish his purpose for our lives. But most of the times, those are not the ones that we've dreamed up. I promise you, when I look at my life, this is not the life I dreamed up. This is the life he had for me. And some of the things that I have brought on myself, the, the repercussions of sin, other things, it's just God doing what he has to do to get me into his perfect will for my life. It's his will that's being accomplished, not mine. And his will is always right, but it's usually not the one we've dreamed up. This is not meant to discourage us. It's meant to just redirect our ideas of what is fulfillment, right? When Paul got to the point where he says, I tell you what I figured out. He, he's let me have a lot. He's let me have a little. He's let me feel, be in great health. He's let me be in bad health. I've suffered. I've been brought high. I've been laid low. And I have discovered, I've found a way to be content in all of it. And I've come to the conclusion that here's how my life works. If I'm alive, it's about Christ. If I'm dead, I'm with it. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I mean, I actually had a guy, I'm so, so far down the road on this. I was praying with a friend of mine this week uh, who thought he might have COVID 19. I start praying about if it, if it, if it were to lead to his death. And he's like, hey, stop, Burgess. Are you praying about my death already? I said, well, I mean, to, to live as Christ, to die as game. Maybe God's about to kill you. He goes, remind me not to call you to pray anymore. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's what I just said. I mean, we don't know. I, I, I really don't care. Uh, under the authority of God, I say to God, you know, Lord, certainly uh, my preference would be this, but what do we always say? But ultimately, your will be done. Hey, Ray, do you think you're going to be here next year? I don't know. Lord willing, I will. 
And if I'm here, then I hope to be about his business. And if I'm not, y'all don't worry about me. Because you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've done whatever he needed me to do, and hopefully uh, that, that I accomplished what he, set, he, he, he was able to accomplish through me, and I'm redeemed and forgiven for the things that I resist, resisted at the moment because of my faith in Christ. So what we're really supposed to be doing, and this is not popular with the moral theist at all, but Jesus is our peace. He's our life. He offers absolute comfort and joy. We experience taste of this here on earth and eagerly await our eternal communion with God in heaven. Our God confirms us to the, the likeness of Christ. He frees us from the shackles of our idolatry and self-absorption and changes our desires. You've heard me say this before. That's one of the most profound things that I've learned through my suffering is God said, Rick, here's where you're incorrect. I am not sitting on the throne. I am not the beginning and the, and the end. I didn't speak creation to existence. I didn't create mankind uh, to give you your desires. What I have done coming to you as, as 100% God and 100% man, when I went to the cross to pay for the death that you deserve and I walked out of the tomb and I ascended back to my proper place and I now sit at the right hand of the Father, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, all the things that are being done right now, they're not being done so Rick Burgess can have his desires. They're being done so God can change my desires. Somebody say amen to that. He's not in the business of giving us our desires because our desires a lot of times are wrong. He's here to change our desires. The devoted follower of Jesus isn't getting his and her desires confirmed and always fulfilled. No, what you desire is actually changed. And man, it simplifies life when you get this. That's what it's all about. C.S. Lewis said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We mentioned this one time in a past Bible study, but I love this quote. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Hey, we set our goals way too low. And what do you find because you've done that? When you achieve your very low goal, what do you find? This wasn't very fulfilling at all. Maybe in the short term. Only God fulfills for the long time. Often the process of becoming more like Jesus is anything but chasing dreams or following our hearts. It can be painful maturing us through trials. Write this down, James 1, verses 2 through 4. And difficulties always help us as we suffer for Christ and with him. Also write this down, Philippians 3.10. Through all of this sanctification, we are never separated from his love. Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35, Philippians 3.10. Write them both down. God is not a means to an end. He is the means and the end. Well said, Pastor Dean. What a joy to be able to share such truth with a cultural Christian. So the focus of this conversation should be what? Sanctification. Number four, 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life itself when God is needed to resolve a problem. Now, the focus of this conversation, I'll go ahead and tell you because we're running out of time, the, the focus on this conversation would be obedience. How many times have we talked about obedience in this Bible study? Hmm. You know why we talk about obedience a lot in this Bible study? Because the Bible talks about it all the time. Following Jesus will interfere with your life. That, that's, a, that's a painful reality sometimes with Christians. But not so with the cultural Christian or the moral theist. You know why? For the moral theist and the cultural Christian, God's always available. But not in the way that changes anything. God becomes a God who conveniently condones things like cohabitation before marriage, uh, no-fault divorce, a limited local church involvement. And, then, and, and they think that God allows for statements like, I have my own faith. You ever hear this one? Well, yeah, but 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 this is what I believe. Oh, so so now you're gonna you got something outside of the Word of God. We should all hear. You've come up with something. You've had a revelation. Who gave you this revelation? Uh, but see, for the cultural Christian, God allows this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm shacking up with somebody I'm not married to, but but God, you know, God's a good God and He loves me and He doesn't want me to be denied this. I mean, you know, and and I have my own faith. Uh, that's a little fallback line. Uh, Christian Smith b- uh, explains uh, this type of religion. This is good. It's a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but he's not one who particularly personally is involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. See, the cultural Christian, that's why the cultural Christian can look at porn and it doesn't bother them. They can still go to church on Sunday. Because they've created a God that would prefer they didn't watch porn, but isn't that upset about it? That he would prefer that he wasn't having an affair, you know, but it's not like he's going to come down on him about it. Uh, he prefers that she wasn't disrespectful to her husband, and she's a gossip, and she's reading Fifty Shades of Grey. God would prefer she didn't do that, but it's not like he's upset about it. See, this is how the cultural Christian thinks. I was one, I know. So sin's not that big a deal. God would prefer I wasn't like this, but he's not going to come down on me. And then, of course, he's gracious, so, I mean, he's going to be okay. And so I don't think God's really here with me all the time. So, you know, the thing, the thing that really got me under conviction about my life, and it's still going on, is when I realized that I believed biblically, and I was correct, that the Holy Spirit now lives in, in my life which means the presence of God is with me everywhere, including everything I'm watching, everything I'm saying, everything I'm listening to, and everything I'm reading, and every conversation I'm having, and every interaction and every thought that comes into my mind, no matter how far away from everybody I may be. I cannot leave the presence of God, so he's involved in everything that I'm doing. The cultural Christian does not believe that. The moral theist believes that that God's like a light switch that you cut on and off. And if you don't want him you know, coming in and messing up your day, you turn him off. Now, if you need him because you're afraid you're going to die, you flip it back on. If you're afraid of COVID-19, you flip him on. If, you're not, if you think COVID-19 is not going to get you, you flip it back off and go back to doing whatever you want to do. That's how the cultural Christian and the moral theist sees God. But that's not biblical. That's, that's actually incorrect. Uh, what you find is that churches aren't helping with this either. Um, you know, a cultural Christian likely wouldn't admit that he views, he views God as a butler or a therapist. 
He may function as though God's existence shouldn't interfere with his personal decisions, and churches never really take this on. There's a widespread popular uh, church culture right now where the language and therefore experience of, of Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, and heaven and hell appear at the very least to be supplanted by the language of, uh, you know, they've been superseded by language that involves happiness, niceness, earned heavily reward. Uh, it's rampant and it can't go unchallenged. So the, the, the cultural Christianity, a lot of times the church, removes Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification. There is a heaven, which also means there is a hell, and Jesus talks about hell quite a bit. And then they say, really, if you want to grow a church, you need to talk more about happiness, niceness, and really certain types of behavior are really, really applauded by God. But see, that's not the gospel. And so we give people a false sense of assurance. Al Mohler remarks this way. We now face the challenge of evangelizing a nation that largely considers itself itself Christian overwhelmingly believes in some deity, considers itself fervently religious, but has virtually no connection to historic Christianity. We've come up with a version of Americanized Christianity. If you haven't watched these documentaries, The American Gospel, I highly suggest them. There's two of them. Uh, they're available wherever you, you know, watch stuff. Uh, search The American Gospel, uh, part one and part two. And uh, so the focus of this conversation with the cultural Christian who doesn't believe God's particularly involved in one's life except when needed, you got to talk about obedience. Fifth and final, then we'll wrap it up. The moral theist believes that good people go to heaven when they die. I mean, that's what, that's what, but, but how good is good enough? Most people can't provide that answer. Ask that question, what's good enough? Funerals reveal that, that most thought that the achievement and standard for going to heaven is just be somebody that we all seem to like. He's a good old guy. She's a, man, she's great. In cultural Christianity, the moral theist gets to the sentimental place called heaven by being good. So this simple critical question must be asked of them over and over again to the point of frustration. What do you mean by good? A gospel presentation that fails to clearly define God's standard as perfection is a gospel presentation that makes the work of Christ confusing and unnecessary. If, nobody, if not everybody needs the cross to be redeemed, why do we have the cross at all? If all religions are the same, then why did God put his son on the cross? Ask that question. This is a troubling thought to a cultural Christian or a moral theist who might have a cross necklace around their neck, cross-themed art in their home, or a cross tattoo on their ankle. It can begin the journey to understand a gospel that will save them from their damnable good works. This conversation should focus on God's holiness and his demand for perfection. Good people don't go to heaven. Redeemed people go to heaven. Perfected people go to heaven. They were perfected by Jesus Christ. I had this conversation with a, a Jewish man in Israel because I asked a, an uncomfortable question to this Jewish man. I, n- I don't mean to offend anyone who may be Jewish 
watching this. I just want to tell you the truth. And I was talking to him, and he did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. And I said, well, I noticed, though, that the temple is gone. All y'all have is a wall over here. I've been to it, and we're sticking prayers into it. So why isn't the sacrificial system still going? Where are the animal sacrifices? He said, well, we don't do that anymore. You know, we don't have a temple. I said, well, then how are you redeemed from sin? He said, we try to do good things. And it was just we talked about, we try to do more good things than we do bad things. And we have special days that we set aside for doing good. I said, well, how do you know that it's good enough? And there was silence. And I said, no, if, if Jesus isn't Messiah and he was not the final lamb of God, then there need to be lambs of God being slaughtered. There needs to be bulls. There needs the, the blood sacrifice and that sacrificial system should still be going. Well, we try to do good things. And then he said to me, he said, if Jesus Christ comes on that Mount of Olives that we're, we were looking at, like you said, then I'll believe in him. And I said, well, what if you die before that happens? How do you know you were good enough? Yeah. And that's about the sound of it. Wonderful man. I loved my conversations with him, and he was couldn't have been kinder, and he enjoyed debating, as all Jewish people do, and talking about it, but he had no answer. And I said, the answer is Jesus. And he says, you know, I respectfully disagree, but if I see him and he comes through that gate, then I'll believe. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's the decision he made. And I don't know if that decision has ever been different, but that day that's how it was left. But the problem is we can't be good enough. That's why we got to have Jesus. So these five principles are before you. First of all, how do they apply to you? How do they apply to me? And then, if you feel pretty good about that, how does it apply to people that are in your circle of influence? And are you willing to have these difficult conversations? Because the cultural Christian and the moral theist will go to hell just like the agnostic and the atheist. Reaching them with the true gospel is really, really important. And we must be willing to have these conversations. And we must be willing to challenge this false belief. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this, uh, this clarity. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that we are allowed pure righteousness in you, Jesus, that we, we, we do have access to redemption. And Lord, I pray that we follow what you say, and that is just to come to you broken and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I am wretched. I am wretched. And even though that the, the, the culture may see me as a good person, the culture's standard and society's standard and the world's standard is very low. Your standard is much higher because your standard is perfection. And I know that I'm not perfect. So I need perfection. So I ask now, Lord, that, that you hear me repent of my sins and you hear me submit to your authority and you hear me, Lord, in my sincere heart asking for you to make me perfect and forgive me of my sins. And then now, Lord, my, my spirit will come alive and I'll begin to pursue you 
so that, I, that I'll know you. And then when I know you, I'll love you. And Scripture says, when I love you, then I'll obey you. And when I obey you, the desires to feed my flesh will become less and less. And instead of me asking you to always give me my desires, I know that because of your power, you'll change my desires. I beg for this, Lord. If you're somebody that doesn't have this, just, just say, Lord, be sincere in your heart, and he'll change you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, Lord. Amen. If I can help you in any way, maybe you made a decision today, you need help working through this, rick at rickandbubba.com. Hey, thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the Wednesday Bible Study. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.